good afternoon, everyone. Grace and peace. It is good to see everyone. Um, hopefully everybody has gotten plenty to eat. Um, y'all say thanks to uh, Michelle and Tetta for this great food. Thank y'all very much. So, so good. I hope y'all are enjoying it, enjoying the company. Um, I send uh, regrets from Pastor Kurt. Well, maybe not regrets. He's in England right now. Uh, I think they are at Wimbledon today. Uh, that was uh, what Jason, his son, wanted to do was to go to Wimbledon, and I think they are there today. Uh, but they, it might have been yesterday. I uh, can't remember for sure. Uh, but uh, for Americans or for for people who are not English, uh, to go to Wimbledon, you have to buy a ticket and then you have to get in line and cross your fingers. And so hopefully they got in and are enjoying their time. And so uh, so we're gonna. As we were kind of going through uh, some history and then picking back up with some various aspects of Methodism, uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to put a pause on the history for right now because Kurt is our uh, resident master historian and he's better in that area than I am. And so what we're going to kind of dig deep into today is John Wesley's theology, Methodist theology. It kind of give you some just key words and key realities that really bubble up to the surface uh, relative to uh, the things that Wesley taught. And if you will remember back to a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the things I want to do during our times together, remember, if you weren't here last week, we're going to extend this this uh, uh, program uh, through July. So this is not the last one. So we're going to go all the way through July until school starts. And so uh, it's been received very well. And so uh, I sure have been enjoying it. I hope you all have too. But one of my hopes is, is that we're going to redeem some words. When, and I asked you all a couple of weeks ago, when you hear the word doctrine, what does that do to you? And most of you, it's like, ee, doctrine. It's like, oh, golly. But what do we say about what the word doctrine means doctrine is that which makes you well right remember doctor when you go see the doctor what do you hope your doctor's gonna do Vince when they come see you with your teeth hurting they hope you're gonna do what for them make them well right this is what doctrine does it is not meant to rob us of life, but to give us life. Another word I want to redeem, because these are words that John Wesley used all the time. And we've kind of let them drop out of use. And it's a great way to kind of, let's, let's pull them back out, knock the dust off, and use them in our conversation because it like, it startles people. Why would you use the word doctrine and being made well together? That's what it means. Next word. Religion. How does that word hit you? Kind of like the same way doctrine does. It's like in the, in the Bible, the Pharisees were religious. Right? You'll oftentimes hear, hear about the, the, this. Hear it like this. I don't care too much for a religion... But I'm all about a relationship. That's kind of how it it uh, gets played off of each other. Well, the the original Latin meaning behind the word uh, religion, it's two words: the re, 
in the legend part, it means to, wait for it, connect again. Now, what in the world is wrong with that? Basically, using in a spiritual sense, religion is that which helps us to connect with God again or to bind with God again. And if you think about the biblical story, remember the foundational piece of John Wesley's doctrine, Methodist doctrine. Remember from the little pamphlet I gave you? What was their fundamental doctrine? Talking about the Methodists. That the Bible is the whole and sole rule, both of Christian faith and practice. The first three chapters of the Bible, they end with there being a disconnect. Humanity is outside of the garden. And the rest of the grand biblical story is the story of humanity What's the last, in the last uh, chapter of Revelation? There's the garden again. It's this time it's a city, the new Jerusalem. But it's people have religion. They have reconnected. I love this quote at the bottom of this that I handed y'all a couple of weeks ago. It says, uh, he's asking the question, what then is religion? It is happiness in God. Or in the knowledge and love of God. It is faith working by love, producing righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is religion. What's wrong with that? It's nothing, it's beautiful. And that's what we're going to continue to pursue uh, today. Um, there's four words. It's like four is a really good number because it's like the the four legs of a chair. It's kind of kind of gives you you're, you're really solid if you've got four of something, right? Well, there probably could be five or six, but we're going to stick with four today. There are four words that are at the heart of Methodist or John Wesley's uh, theology. And that if we can understand and kind of let these words uh, grip our hearts relative to uh, the way in which God is at work in our lives, we can kind of grasp who we are to be as uh, people who are walking with God in the Methodist way, you might say. I'm going to give you all four words, and then we're going to kind of unpack them as we go. Sound good? Any questions before we move? Are we ready? All right. The words are salvation, faith, love, and grace. Let's start with salvation. There are 44 sermons that John Wesley wrote. He wrote a lot more sermons than that, but there are 44 that he wrote that are known as the standard sermons. Uh, sometimes that gets expanded to 52. After George Whitfield died, you know, his friend we've talked about, it got expanded to 53. That included John Wesley's uh, sermon uh, for his funeral. But really, there are 44 that are kind of the original that give the Methodist 
uh, pastors and class leaders the sum total of Wesley's theology. And they are long. And they are kind of hard to get through. But there's a couple of sermons that kind of give the heart of, of this uh, of the, of the Methodist message, you might say. And one of them is called the Scripture Way. Because what's the foundation of our doctrine? The Bible, right? So John Wesley calls it the Scripture Way of Salvation. Now, not everybody in the room uh, grew up Methodist. And so um, that being said, and just being part of a... You know, just being in the South, in the Bible Belt, we kind of have different understandings of salvation. Like, when does salvation happen? You will hear somebody say, well, I got saved when I was at church camp. We have kids that have just gotten back from church camp, right? Do you have a moment in your life where you say, I got saved? Well, it's okay to talk about salvation in the past tense, but we are now being saved, and we will be saved. The scripture talks about salvation as this full-orbed thing. Let me just read some passages of scripture to you uh, relative to salvation. Um, first one is Ephesians. This is like the classic Reformation passage about salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Wait a second. What are the four words we're doing today? Salvation, faith, love, and grace. So listen for all of those words in these passages as I read. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So in this passage, Paul is talking about salvation as something that has happened in the past. And we'll unwind what that looks like for uh, John Wesley. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Just a couple of books over to the left. For the message of the cross, Paul writes, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. So notice that remarkable statement. Paul lumps himself into that this this uh, group of people that he's talking about, as close to God as Paul was. He makes the claim that he is also in the process of being saved, right? And then um, last. Uh, not all of it, but last is Romans chapter uh, 5, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, 
how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That this is a future reality that is in the, in the, that is coming to us in the future. Somebody were to ask you, what is salvation? Just want you to kind of go through your head what you would say to them. What does your salvation mean to you? Right? Much like the word doctrine that mean, that means that which makes you well. The word uh, salvation in Greek or being saved in Greek is in essence a word that means to be made whole. Now let me read you from this sermon called The Scripture Way of Salvation, um, the way uh, John Wesley describes it. He says, and first, let us inquire, what is salvation? The salvation which is here spoken of is not what is frequently understood by the word. The going to heaven, eternal happiness. It is not the souls going to paradise, turned by our Lord, Abraham's bosom. It is not a blessing which lies on the other side, uh, on the other side, death, or as you will usually speak, in the other world. The very word of the text itself puts, puts this beyond question. Ye are saved. It is not something at a distance. It is a present thing. So normally, like in the kind of the, the typical Christian evangelical Bible Belt world, is that, the, that salvation is an event that happens, and because this event happens, then when I die, I go to heaven. John Wesley is working really hard in this sermon to dispel that. That salvation is that. But it is much, much more. Questions? He says, So that salvation which is here spoken of might be extended to the entire work of God. From the first dawning of grace in the soul till it is consummated in glory. This is the work that God is doing in us and not just in us, but through us for the sake of the world. To make us in the world whole. To recapture, uh, as John Wesley would often put it, that divine spark, the divine image of God that we are all made to recapture that. John Wesley, what he does is he he, uh, begins to kind of chop up in order to make sense of salvation, in order to make sense of the grace and the way that we Methodists understand grace, it's pretty simple, that grace is a gift. 
and that that gift, that word has this connection uh, with joy in Greek and that it's the gifts that we receive from God by which we receive the joy of God. Of being in reconnecting, you might say, with God. And so you might say that John Wesley talks about different four different types of grace. He talks about prevenient grace or preventing grace. And before you uh, believed, before you accepted the grace of God, God was already at work in your life. Through people, through circumstances, um, maybe your parents were bringing you to church. It's that grace that you're not aware of that God, because God desires your heart. God desires the connection. And so John Wesley called that grace, he called it prevenient or preventing grace. It is the grace of God that keeps you from slipping so far out of the reach of God that you have this capacity to say yes and to come back to him. Right? So ponder this, brothers and sisters. The way in which we order our lives... Um, the way in which, and we'll, we'll talk about more of this later, the way in which God is at work in us to make us holy, to sanctify us, that that grace becomes for others provenient grace. Track you with me? That when you accept, continue to accept God's grace in your life, the overflow of that grace can be for somebody else, provenient grace, or it can lead to their justifying grace as well. Wow. That's how God works. God normally doesn't zap people outside of human agency. But he uses his followers to communicate, to become a means of grace for others. So that's preventing, uh, preventing or prevenient grace. The second is justifying grace. And this is the grace that we receive when we say yes to God. Justification, Wesley says, is another word for pardon. It is the forgiveness of all our sins. And what is necessarily implied therein are acceptance with God. The price whereby this hath been procured for us is the blood and righteousness of Christ. Or to express it a little more clearly, all that Christ hath done and suffered for us till he poured out his soul till he poured out his soul for the transgressors the immediate effects of justification are peace of the peace of god a peace that passeth, passeth all understanding and a rejoicing in hope of the glory of god with joy unspeakable and full of glory one of the things that's interesting when you read John Wesley's sermons, uh, guess what a type of punctuation is used more than any other? 
quotation marks. Because he is like literally quoting scripture as he is writing this stuff out. Because he actually believes what he says is the sole foundation of our doctrine that is the scripture. So he quoted in that little, in that little thing that I just read to you, he quoted one, two, three, four passages of scripture. Wow. It's really cool. Right. That is justification. The third is sanctification or sanctifying grace. Sanctification begins at the moment justification uh, happens. Um, He goes on to say, At the same time we are justified, yea, in that very moment, sanctification begins. In that instant we are born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. There is a real as well as a relative change. We are inwardly renewed by the power of God. We feel the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. Producing love to all others, and especially more to the children of God. Expelling the love of the world, the love of pleasure, of ease, of honor, of money, together with pride, anger, self-will, and every other evil temper, in a word, changing the earthly, sensual, devilish mind into the mind which was in Christ Jesus. When you said yes to Jesus, is that what you were signing up for? Because you see, that is what God's gift to us. Because if justification says, God is saying to us, we're good. Think of the moment that the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son came home. What did the father do? We are good. He embraced him. Ring on his finger. Shoes on his feet. Through a party. We are good. And they celebrated his homecoming. You ever wondered what the conversation was like the next day? After the party was over? Son. Maybe it could go something like this. Let's talk about some things. And you can fill in the blank about the things that they would need to talk about. And so our life from our, the moment that we say yes uh, to God is a life of having this conversation with God. Having this conversation through with the followers of God and allowing those, what does he say? Expelling the love of the world. Because we can't love two things, right? Expelling the love of the world, love of pleasure, of ease, honor, money, together with all pride, anger, self-will, and every other evil temper in a word, changing the earthly, sensual, devilish mind into the mind of Christ. And this is the goal, the process of life with God
is being transformed into his image. And then the last is um, glorifying grace. And that glorifying grace uh, is this grace that is the grace after we die or when Christ returns, when we will be given new and glorious bodies and that it says at the end of the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see as in a glass dimly. So good, Patty. That's right. So good. Yeah, it's like in the ancient world, glass was, you know, mirrors. They weren't like high-tech like they are these days, right? And so you could, you could, there, there was a reflection, but it was dim. It's like, I can't quite see all that I'm supposed to see. And because of the reality of the brokenness of the world, there are just things we won't be able to see until we see Jesus. How, Patty? Face to face. That's right. Face to face. That is glorifying grace. You want it? Is this the life that you want? Well, that's the next step that John Wesley talks about in this sermon. And it's just such a critical aspect to Methodist uh, theology. Uh, John Wesley stands on the shoulders of the uh, great Protestant reformers who said that our life with God was rooted in faith. Uh, Without faith... It is impossible to please the Lord. And so he goes on in the middle part of the sermon to talk about what faith is. And he just asks the question, what is the faith through which we are saved? And note that it is, the, and really it's the two middle graces, the justifying grace and the, and the sanctifying grace that really get the lion's share of, of uh, Wesleyan teaching and Wesleyan theology. And so it's like, how is that grace released into our lives? How is the grace received? And that's kind of how he goes into talking about that. He says... Taking the word faith in a more particular sense. Faith is a divine evidence and conviction. Not only that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, but also that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. It is by faith that we receive Christ. That we receive him and all of his offices as our prophet, our priest, and our king. And it is by this that he is made of God unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Like how do you know if you really believe? That's kind of like a, a quintessential question. John Wesley wrestled with it. If you all remember back to a couple of sessions ago, before his Aldersgate Street experience, he doubted the love of God in his life. 
whether it's my exposure to Wesley or something that I have like just just arrived at on my own, I'm not sure. But when you ponder sin, I mean, you need to have a good working definition of sin too, right? Like sin is all the ways in which we rebel against the love of God. If love is God willing our good, which I think is a good working definition of love. If love is willing our good and God loves us deeply and we choose to rebel against him, that all sin then becomes a failure of love. A failure to have faith that God loves us. Remember I talked about that last week that... We get kind of focused, hyper-focused on the acts of sin. And those are, those are important, especially when those sins have this collateral impact on other people. It's really important. But what we'll say, we'll say to ourselves is, you know, if I tell that lie, I'm going to save my behind. And it's not going to hurt anybody else. That's how we'll rationalize it, right? Well, let's say that's true. Your behind is saved. No one else is hurt. But what you fail to do is to take a couple of steps back. What did you not believe, have faith in about God that led you to believe that you had to lie in that situation? So the work, the work of dealing with our sin is not merely a work of confession. Confession is important, but it is doing the work of the conversation that the father would have with the younger son the day after the party. Hey, let's talk about that. Why did you believe you had to lie to be safe? And so, keep that in mind, that sin is a failure of faith, which is a failure of love. In that moment, it is a failure to receive the love and the care, and what does he say? He calls it several different things. The wisdom of the righteousness, the sanctification, and the redemption of God in that moment. Remember we had the football last week, right? And a football is made to be received. The love of God is for us to be received. And when we receive it, it sets us free from our perceived need to sin. says, people cannot have a childlike confidence in God till he knows he is a child of God. Therefore, confidence, trust, reliance, adherence, or whatever else it is to be called is not 
the first, as some have supposed, but the second branch or act of faith. So it is this reaching out, coming to the end of our rope, reaching out and trusting that God loves us. And in so doing, confidence, trust, reliance, it grows. It's part of our sanctifying process. So what is necessary for our justifying faith? For our justi- for our, what, is, what is necessary for us to be justified, to be pardoned by God? Faith. Period. He is like, that is it. This deep-held belief that I am loved by God. What about sanctifying? Sanctification. Surely, surely it's just not faith that we're sanctified by. And here is where John Wesley struggles. He kind of wavers back and forth. He uses some uh, some uh, Jedi language, not mind tricks, but it's more Jedi language. He 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 is insistent that the same way we are justified by growing by by accepting the love of God, that we are sanctified by believing in and trusting in the love of God. Okay, And it is that continued growing, uh, having faith in who God is, faith in the character of God that causes us then to be molded further into the character of God, to drop those sins and to, to just to put them behind us because we don't need them anymore. Because we have come to this place where we truly believe that God is for us and he has a purpose for our life. Right? And so while he is insistent that we are sanctified, made holy, made perfect even by faith, he goes on to say that there are ways in which that we should engage in what he calls good works in order for us to be further sanctified, further made holy, further made perfect in love. Y'all ready for him? Y'all can write these down. I'll go slow. All right. There's two different classes of good works that John Wesley says are necessary for us to grow into perfection. The first class are, he terms, works of piety. Now, Pastor Kurt has used that word in our time, have it? He, he talked about the pietistic movement. So John Wesley is in line with this pietistic movement that started in Germany, came to England, that got his heart, what? Strangely warmed, right? First of all, works of piety, such as public prayer. I think he would say that means going to church, Right? Public prayer, family prayer, praying in our closet, receiving the supper of the Lord, searching the scriptures by hearing, reading, meditating. And using such a measure of fasting, 
or abstinence as our bodily health allows. So, in summary, prayer, all different types. Holy Communion. Scripture. Fasting. Those four things. While he doesn't say it here, what he says then is, in other places, is that those things, they are not... Wesley was like, he was like, he would like dig in like with his elbow into people's hearts on this. Because we are masters at thinking things are an end in of themselves. That we use the means of grace and that we can say, ha, because I've done this, God loves me. Whoa, you missed the point. You can't do or not do anything to change God's love for you. Whenever we receive, whenever we become followers of Jesus, that's what we, we have become convinced of that God loves us. John Wesley said, right? And that we receive it. We accept our acceptance, you might say. That prayer, our prayer with God does not expand God's love for us. What it does is it expands our understanding of God's love for us. And it sets on a trajectory for us to grow in our love for others. Coming to church, praying, singing, putting money in the offering plate, none of them are an end in of themselves. They are a means by which we further receive an under, a deeper understanding of the love of God. Those are... The works of piety. Questions on the works of piety. Man, am I just overwhelming everybody today? Come on. Any questions, thoughts, feelings, emotions? I would like to know what three and four were, then I missed prayer. No, prayer, all types of prayer. So public prayer, family prayer, praying in our closet, receiving the Lord's Supper, searching the scriptures. That's John Wesley's way of saying, read your Bibles, right? Hearing, reading, meditating, and using such measures of fasting or abstinence. One of the things that um, all the stuff, and y'all know what all the stuff that I'm talking about that is that is uh, relative going on in the culture wars um, in our in our country. One of the things that rarely gets mentioned, I'll probably get skinned for saying this, but there is, there is nothing in our culture that values self-control. Nothing. And in the kingdom of God, self-control is like a big-ass deal. Can I say that? Well, I guess I did. It, it's like a big, it's a big deal. Because the alternative is that we, we fall into this trap of indulging the flesh. And when we... And for those of you who are in recovery, y'all could probably teach this a lot better than me. Um, but 
it's like we become addicted to things to numb us to the pain and the emptiness in our life. Right? And as we as we persist in that, it just sends us into a further and further hole, right? Because we are moving further and further away from the actual source of our living and being in the world, which is God, right? And so self-control invites us to take a pause. That's why fasting and abstinence is such a big, is an important deal to Wesley, is it gives us a place, a space, a mechanism, a means of grace to pause and to say, you know, my whole and complete trust, my whole orientation of my heart, Lord Jesus, I want it to be for you and you alone. And for the things that matter to you and you alone. And so in the, in the, in fasting, and John Wesley would normally fast twice a week. Now when he got older, he cut that down to once a week. And when he even got older still, he did not completely fast from, from all food and drink for a period of time. But his fast was after supper. And I think he did this on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, Tuesdays and Fridays. He, after supper on the night before, he would, he, he, of course, he would stop eating and he would not eat again until when? High tea in England. He would break his fast with, with, uh, with tea and crumpets, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so like at four o'clock in the afternoon. So it wasn't even a 24 hour fast. It was, it was less than that. Um, but he would do that and then he would dedicate the time that he would normally spend eating those meals, he would dedicate that time to those other means of grace. So fasting is never an end of itself. It always is to be joined with prayer and scripture or serving. Questions on any of those thoughts? So remember, this is how God's sanctifying grace is further received. Second, the works that we're talking about are the works of mercy. He goes on to say, whether they relate to the bodies or souls of men, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, entertaining the stranger, visiting those that are in prison or sick, or variously afflicted, such as endeavoring to instruct the ignorant, to awaken the stupid sinner, I wonder if Wesley ever said that to somebody. You're a stupid sinner. Let me enlighten you a little bit. (laughs) To quicken the lukewarm, to confirm the wavering, to comfort the feeble-minded, to succor the tempted, to contribute to any manner to the saving of souls from death. This is the repentance, he says, that is the fruit of, of repentance. And he goes on to say, which are necessary to full sanctification. So inherently, what John Wesley sees when he reads the scripture, that you and I are made in God's image. And to be made in the image of God is that we image God's character out into the world. And when they, and when we do that with humility and with love, which is the way in which God works in the world, is through those those means that people can't help but notice. 
And it is through that grace that others are enabled to experience the love of God and to then receive it. So our sanctification is not just for our own benefit, but it is for the benefit of others. One of my professors uh, at seminary, his name was Bob Mulholland. He uh, defined uh, spiritual formation, sanctification, uh, like this. The process of, of spiritual the, the the process of spiritual formation is to be conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. The process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others very much resonates with what uh, John Wesley was talking about in this sermon. The sermon ends. Wow. And I would encourage you, you could go, go home and read this sermon online. Just go type in Scripture Way of Salvation and you could read it. I think it's probably the best summary of Methodist theology. It's eight pages. Like I know the print's kind of fine, but it's eight pages, so you can get through it probably 30 minutes or so. Um, like, do you really believe God can do anything? Do you believe that God has the power to do that which God believes is necessary for the saving of the world. If you shake your head yes, that God can do anything, that you've got to conclude then that God can sanctify you and make you holy and make you more like His Son. Every day, make you more like His Son. We don't have to give in to this notion, brothers and sisters, that sin, a willful violation of a known law of God, that sin is a normal part of our lives. That if God is powerful and God is able to do what God can do, then if we have faith, going back to those words again, if we have faith... And that we commit our hearts to the love of Christ. That he too can sanctify us. And according to Wesley's words, entirely. Make us complete, perfect in love. He says this. You think, I must first be or do thus or thus. Then you are seeking it, sanctification, unto this day. You are seeking it by works. If you seek it by faith, listen to this. If you seek it by faith, expect it as you are. As if you are, then expect it now. It is of importance to observe that there is an inseparable connection between these three points. Expect it by faith. Expect it as you are, and expect it now. To deny one of them is to deny them all. To allow one is to allow them all. Do you believe that we are sanctified by faith? Be true then in your principle, and look for this blessing just as you are.
neither better nor worse, as a poor sinner that has still nothing to pay, nothing to plead, but Christ died. And if you look for it as you are, then expect it now. Stay for nothing. Why should you? Christ is ready, and he is all you want. He is waiting for you. He is at the door. Let your inmost soul cry out, Come in, come in, thou heavenly guest. Nor hence again remove, but sup with me, and let the feast be everlasting. What do you think? Love. So this is what John Wesley and the early Methodists believed that God could actually do in the lives of people. That he could actually take away our anger, our pride, our focus on things that matter not. We were talking about in our worship design team meeting uh, today as we were getting ready for Sunday um, on social media, the reality of filters on social media. You know, when you look at a photo, you have to look, is that the real person or is there a filter there that's making them look like 30 years younger than they are? And that has some deep spiritual implications because what that says is that our appearance is the most important thing about us. Hopefully that's not what's going on in here in this room, but that's what's going on out there. And so how can our life being set afire by the love of God be the thing that starts to turn and change the priorities of the world? Because, brothers and sisters, that's the only way it's going to change. is by followers of Jesus believing faith that God can do what God wants to do in our lives if we will but receive and believe his grace well, we run over time just a little bit anybody have a good question one question for the good of the group if not I want to invite us to stand for uh Almost from the beginning of the Methodist movement in America, uh, and I've talked, we've talked about this, that one of the, the uh, distinctives of Methodists is that we sang our theology. And um, the, our Church of Christ brothers and sisters, they kind of have a corner on this now. Right, they're 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 the ones that are known for their singing, right? And if you've never been to a Church of Christ worship service, it's one of the most glorious things uh, that you can ever experience. Um, but we were the we we were first, right? And um, in verse four, it's the middle verse. There's usually seven verses that we sing about four thousand tons to sing. Could be the most powerful line of a hymn ever. You know what it is? He breaks the power of canceled sin. You see, our sin is forgiven. We are justified. But that power remains. And it is through the process of sanctification that that power is broken. 
because we become more convinced of the love of God. So when we get to verse 4, let's just ramp it up just a little bit more and let's sing it together. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks and listening to his voice. New light the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. In Christ your head you then shall know shall feel your sins forgive, anticipate your heaven below, and own that love is heaven. I hope when you sing that hymn that you'll remember this conversation that we had today. Did you notice all of those, so many of those words that we focused in on today were in that hymn? That is how John and Charles, another way, became a means of grace to teach theology through these hymns. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys.